1: Hello, this is Judy Sedgman, and I'm uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and welcome to Psychology Has It Backwards. I am so happy to be here with my dear, wonderful friend Christine Heath, coming to you from Hawaii. Yep, and looking wonderful as always. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're so funny.
0: You definitely know that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. With Judy Sedgman, let me tell you, she's like to to. Uh, one of yeah. one of the places that she worked, they called her the effing good fairy, and uh, she's definitely the <laughs> most cheerful, positive person you could possibly meet. But she always uh, sees beauty where sometimes other people might question whether it's actually there. <laughs>
1: Well, you know the good part about that, Chris, is that if you see it and it's real to you, it makes you happy. you know
0: that's right. That's right. That's right.'m I'm, I'm certainly glad that you see that. Maybe someday I'll see it too. <laughs> well, anyway, today we're gonna
1: we had uh, a, a contact form uh, on our website from a listener who has asked us uh, to talk about a couple of topics. And so we thought, okay, um, if someone really wants to hear this, it's a very frequently asked, both are very frequently asked questions. So we're going to start off today talking about um, the question of what about people that come into the world with with what, what are known as various defects of their brain, such as uh, ADHD or autism or... Um, other manifestations of thinking that make them uh seem difficult or different to other people. And so um you know I thought about this for a while and I thought I'd really like to start with a story of something that I heard very early in my experience with the principles years ago. I mean this would go back almost 40 years probably. Um when Sid Banks was speaking to a large number of staff members at a hospital in Tampa, Florida, and I was there. And um, towards the end of the talk, he got very, very quiet and very deep. And he started talking about the fact that everybody is perfect, that we all have perfect mental health, regardless of what's going on. And he repeated that several times in different ways. And there was a row of nurses sitting towards the back. They had come in kind of almost at the last minute and they were still kind of (laughs) frenzied from work and they had been sitting in the back. And this one nurse was frantically raising her hand. And so finally he called on her and she said, you know, I, I just, I was following you until you said what you just said about everybody being born perfect, but she said, I work in the pediatric intensive care unit, and I can tell you there are a lot of babies that aren't born perfect. And she started listing off all the ways in which babies are born with imperfections, uh, many of them mental. And uh, and she said, people come into the world defective, and um, I, I, I can tell you you're wrong. I'm sure you've never worked in a pediatric intensive care unit. And she just kind of went on for a little while, and then when she quieted down, Sid waited a little while, there was a moment, several moments of silence. And he said, I I, I don't know what your question has to do with perfect mental health, which is a spiritual thing. And she got angry and a whole bunch of those nurses just got up and walked out. But the rest of the room, he just left that there for a while and it was very quiet and you could see it. I mean, I looked around the room and I could see people, you know, how people when they get reflective and then their face changes and you could see people kind of going, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, That that's true, isn't it? And it really had a profound effect on me because um I just never thought about it before. <laughs> I'd never, it was the first time that I really saw that there, the spiritual nature of our life is not the form we live in. It's not, it's, it's us, but it's the energy of us. It isn't the form it takes as we live our life in this world. And uh, when I, it changed my whole thinking about, um, about people. You know, just people, all kinds of people. I just suddenly, I, I couldn't label them anymore in my own mind. Oh, well, that person's got ADHD, no wonder. Or that person is, you know, they used to, back in those days, they still use the word that nobody wants to use anymore. But, uh, they're retarded, uh, which was a very common word. And I remembered that uh, when I first started working right out of college, uh, some of us that worked on the publication I worked for ate in a Friendly's restaurant and the Friendly's, uh, corporation, the company that ran these restaurants deliberately reached out to hire, uh, mentally disabled people for the tasks like cleaning the tables, um, greeting the customers, um, helping people back to their cars if they needed help. Like they were a lot, I lived in a community where there are a lot of elderly people. Um, And sweeping the floors and just general, you know, general duties around the restaurants. And they were so, uh, the feeling in that place was so nice. And I remember asking the manager one time, I said, I think it's wonderful that you hire all these people that probably are very difficult to employ and they, they do their job so well and they seem to really love them. And he said, well, they do love them because that's what they can do. And people love to do what they do well. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, and their little spirits lift when we show them a task and then they do it well. And we stand there and applaud and say, that's exactly how we want it done. Just do that every day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're and they so proud. And the people that greet people are just so happy to see people. And, I, you know, it's very touching to me. I just loved that restaurant. We used to go there for lunch almost every single day because it was so pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so beautiful that they had such high regard for all people. Mm-hmm. But in essence, the, the truth behind it was that our spirit informs us what we can do. And if we find a way to do it, we find our joy in this world, in the world of form. You know, and if and and people always say, you know, it's when you're in college or when you're trying to decide what to do in life, follow your heart. You know, don't major in this because your parents want you to major in what you love, that kind of thing. And and really, it's the same thing, isn't it? That all of every every human being, every every human spirit's, you know, is impetus is to follow our joy, to look for happiness, to look for service, to look for an opportunity to be doing something meaningful to us that we can do well. And that isn't, uh, and I think that's what Sid was driving at, that isn't of this world. It's, it's the spiritual strength that we have behind the form in which we live. And I think it's the same spiritual strength that people call on when they're, you know, like in POW camps or imprisoned or, you know, lost in the woods or whatever. You know, they, they when they're, when the chips are down, they look deep for an answer that comes to them from the unknown, mm-hmm. comes to them from a mysterious source that's we know is there, but we don't, we don't, we couldn't describe it. Mm-hmm. So when I think of the, uh, people that are that are so called uh, different, and I've had a lot of experience, I've dealt with a lot of clients, especially who are autistic. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's fair to label them as though what was different about them was a mental illness or a mental defect. They're, we're all different. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think that's what you just said was really beautiful, Judy, because it kind of points to um, the possibilities that understanding the spiritual nature of our existence brings to people in the formed world, right? So it's kind of like if you have um, uh, uh, one of those diagnoses, like uh, understand that. We're just learning about this too. We're just really, but, but because people come to us that have these diagnoses like ADHD and autism and um, uh, dyslexia, th- um, dementia, all those kinds of things, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think as we wake up to the power of the spirit, we will find ways of helping these people to do their life in a way that's more enjoyable for them um and that's that i think is where the 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 strength is that's where the power is really in a human being now for instance i had a man that i worked with who was um um Autistic, he was what they used to call, um, had Asperger's, very super intelligent, very highly functional in terms of his intellect, but uh, he couldn't really do life. And so he would have to think about how to do his day for three hours before he could get out of bed. And as a result of that, of course, he couldn't work a full time job. And so he had a part time job at a library and he had lots of trouble interacting with people because he really wasn't paying attention to uh, how humans interact um, on a spiritual level, really, like the feeling between people and the communication style that comes from that. And um, he just wasn't aware of it because he was always so caught up in his thinking. And he, um, he went to church, and he had been like a really big activist in college, and he was still like as best he could um, active in uh, environmental things super, super smart guy. So, um, he came in to see me back in, um, before I moved to Hawaii. So it's probably 1984 is right before I left. So probably 1985. And, um, he came into the clinic and he stayed for a while and he got better. And one of the things that, um, that he recognized was that he didn't have to be that way. You know, like it, it, I think Joe Bailey's told him it was a shame to waste his life like that, doing so much thinking and something in shifted and he started getting better. Now still had to think for three hours before I got up and still had trouble with people, but not suffering as much as he was. So then I moved back to Minnesota in 2002. And so he came in, he heard I was in town. So he came in and he became my client. And what I did with him was I just talked about living in a feeling. And he changed so much that he got a full-time job. He stopped thinking for three hours before he got to get up, had a full-time job in the library, met a woman and ended up marrying her, became the head of his church men's group and would give sermons at the church. Now and and was still actively engaged and took care of his elderly parents and it was, it was amazing how much he changed. Now, I didn't know what I was doing, honestly, because I just knew that he had health in him, right? I just knew that, and I had to learn by listening to see what was going on that was getting in the way of that coming out. So, as it, so it, it was like that a short-term thing. It probably took me seven, eight years, maybe nine, um, before he – accomplished all those things, but slowly over time, he just kept getting better. And I was relentless about the fact that he could do it sometimes to his uh, dismay. <laughs> but it, it, it's, I mean, he's, he's still, um, you know, he, his wife got cancer and he nursed her through the cancer. And, you know, it's like things that people with autism just generally aren't known for. So that gives me hope, right? Like that, what people tend to do in the field is that in in the field of psychology is they find a way to rationalize that like, oh, it's because he probably didn't really have that and it was anxiety or something, right? But no, he did. It was, it was, it was pretty clear that he got that uh, diagnosis when he was a kid and um, it was that way until he changed. Beautiful, beautiful story. But, you know, that, and my mother had dementia, right? My mother had dementia for, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Anyway, she was, which is pretty long for somebody to have dementia, actually. And as she got worse, she would have a very difficult time communicating. Like she couldn't get words out. You know, frequently people will talk kind of gibberish. And, and it struck me that there was some, that her, what I could see was her spirit was actively trying to con- communicate, right? There was, so there was something going on in there. And so I asked her, I said, Mama, are you, do you have trouble getting your words out? Is that what, what happens? I mean, can, are you, do the thoughts come in your head and you think it, but when you try to get it out, you can't get it out? And she nodded her head, yes. You know, so that gave me great hope then that I would try to understand what she was thinking or what she was saying. And you know, sometimes she'd be um, lost in the past, where she'd think she was back in Wells, Minnesota, where I grew up. And and then other times she would be more present. But there were times when she said the most unbelievably beautiful, deep things. And I'll I'll give an example. It was um, Mother's Day and my sister Cynthia and I went and she loved Dairy Queen ice cream cakes. God knows why. But she loved Dairy Queen ice cream cakes. And so we got her one of the cakes and we took it to the nursing home. And all of the uh, nurses from the nursing home came in to get a piece of cake, right? And they're all telling her how special she was, and how much they enjoyed taking care of her, and how wonderful she was. And uh, part of that was because when she lost her memory, she lost her insecurity. And so she was cracking jokes with people and making fun. And her husband's, her second husband's name was Hustuff. And so they would call her Helen Hotstuff. And <laughs> <laughs> you know they, she, she just got the nurses loved her they just loved and they would take good care of her as a result of that right and so what what we got her this ice cream cake right and we, all the people were coming in and telling her how much they enjoyed taking care of her and um, when they stopped coming my sister looked at my mother and she said mother you're so special everybody thinks you're so special here and my mother put her fork down and looked at my sister and said, "Special. I'm not special, unique maybe, but not special." <laughs> that is profound that's such
1: a beautiful story
0: yeah I love it I love it yeah you know I yeah. had
1: a, I had a uh, I used to do a, a veterans group for several years. I did a veterans group um, in Florida and most of the veterans in the groups that I did, there were a few uh, older people that were from Vietnam, but most were Korea, Desert Storm, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And um, I would say not our finest moments, let's put it that way. And um, and they they had a variety of troubles, but there was one young man that stuck in my mind because his difficulty really had nothing to do with the fact that he'd been in the service. He went into the service. He was already, uh, had been diagnosed autistic, but he wanted to, he was a daredevil kind of, and he wanted to be a Naval airman. He wanted to fly and land on aircraft carriers and, you know, do dangerous things. And he instead got assigned to a submarine. Um, and it was like his worst nightmare because he was here. He is a young man in a little and confined space on a submarine for hours with where the red button was. And all he had to do was sit there all day and make sure nobody told him to push that button. And if they did to push it and, you know, send a nuclear missile somewhere. So, you know, that didn't happen ever. <laughs> and, and so he would spend, thank God. Yes. And he would spend, uh, hours in this little confined space and he had to pay attention to that all the time be alert and and he couldn't read he couldn't do anything to distract himself because he wouldn't be on duty and he ended up getting discharged because he just couldn't do it he he would, he just couldn't he couldn't last as long as through his whole shift he just couldn't do it and he was discharged for mental reasons so then he was a failure autistic and ashamed <laughs> and depressed so he came to these groups and he stared at the floor mostly and he did he wouldn't engage with the other guys and he was at the groups because they were mandated and um but he was such a I don't know there was something about him that was just very touching and he told he did tell me his story he wouldn't say it in front of the group but he told me after the group one day he said "I'm, I'm I know you probably think I'm he keeping something terrible back but this is what happened to me and he told me the story so I thought hmm. well I used to bring all of Sid's books in and just prop them up on the table where people could pick them up and browse them hoping some of them would buy them you know and so all of Sid's six books were always on the back table uh, for every group and during breaks and stuff people could look at them or I would pick them up and read something from them or whatever So he asked me after one group, can I just take those books? I'll bring them back next group. And I said, Oh, yeah. I said, Do you have to take them all? He said, Yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to take them all. So I thought, I know he'll bring them back. So I said, fine. Well, he was, so it's a week, a week later, I come back. He brings the books back. He can recite every book, word for word, every single one of those six books. He, Memorize them. He knew them, but I realized he knew the words. He knew what the words meant, but he had no idea what the books were about. He he could just recite the books. It's like memorizing a speech or something and just giving it. But it was uh it was certainly got the attention of people in the class when he started. Yeah, do you want to know what's in the missing link? Okay, <laughs> you just say it. And um. And so uh, I talked to him after class and I said, "Uh, what did those books mean to you? And he said, what are you asking me? I said, well, did they mean something to you besides just the words? He said, "Um, I, I know, not really. And it's the same thing you were saying. He just didn't have any feeling. Mm -hmm. He had the intellect going a million miles an hour and an amazing memory and a huge desire for activity and excitement, a hard time sitting still, but he had no feeling for life. And so I remember I said, would you see me after group, you know, privately, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit. So I started seeing him after group for like 30 minutes. And, And then he uh, I asked him what he loved to do. And he said, I just like to, I like the, I like feeling the wind and I like to be free. I just want to, I, I, I like to run. And I said, really? I said, do you run? He said, well, no, um, you know, it's not part of this program and they discourage us to do things like that. And, and uh, I am supposed to have a job and I having a hard time holding my job. And if I, if they caught me running, they'd think I was just trying to escape from my job. And I said, well, I think you should run. I think you should run at night on the beach. He said, really? And he said, if they catch me and they yell at me, will you stand up for me? And I said, absolutely. Well, they never did because nobody's watching them at night. But Anyway, uh, he started running on the beach. And then he ended up um, just participating a little bit in group. And then he moved. He moved to another city because I think he moved to be with his sister or somebody they could live with. And so I didn't see him for a while. And then I was doing group one day and he burst into the room. Out of nowhere, he just, you know, burst in the room and he was wearing uh, running shorts and a, you know, running shirt and he was all sweaty. <laughs> and he burst into the room and I said, wow, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. He said, well, I saw your car in the parking lot, so I figured you were doing group. And I just wanted to come in and tell you guys, whatever this lady is saying to you, listen to her. She knows what she's talking about. And I said, well, what are you up to? He said, I'm training for the Boston Marathon. I oh. am qualified for the Boston Marathon. and I'm training for the Boston Marathon. And he said, I've never felt more happy in my life. Oh, that's great. It was the sweetest thing. And I said, are you working? And he said, yes, I am. I said, where are you working? He said, I'm working in a veteran center and I help to serve the food and clean up and talk to the guys and... This is a person who wouldn't even speak. And I said, what do you talk about? He said, I I tell them things from those books that I remember. And then we talk about them. And he said, I learn a lot from what they say because they picked up the feeling that he was trying to learn how to have these feelings. And I was so thrilled, you know, because to me, there's a perfect example of a person who was lost in the system of people who saw what was wrong with him and never asked him what was right with him. Or what might be right for him?
0: You know, we've come we've come a long ways in terms of looking at human beings and their possibilities. Because um, in the seventies, I had a job where I worked at getting housing, developing group homes for people who had been um, institutionalized because they had Down syndrome or because they had um, cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy or some other debilitating illness. And they would warehouse people because there was no place, way to take care of them. And the, the institutions were God awful. They were known to be like hellholes because no one thought there was anybody there. It's, they would look okay. at the body and see that there was, you know, the body wasn't working well and they would talk to talk and see them as if they were bodies instead of spirits. And, when someone, I don't know who was, suddenly woke up to the fact that, you know, people could learn, they could um, do things, they could be productive. Uh, it was this amazing metamorphosis that happened when people would move into these group homes. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. They just, like, couldn't do anything. And then they'd be up making their own dinner and going, joining clubs and getting out in the community. It was just beautiful to see this human experience awaken. And, um, the, uh, so that was good, but the principles are going to bring another revelation in that because you can see, like I can see even in myself, I have, um, I was in special ed in uh, fourth grade because I have dyslexia and I can't spell very well at all. And if anybody, if you know me, you know, that's, that's a truth. And, uh, uh, I can't. I couldn't read, right? And so when I graduated from a, my master's degree, I swore I'd never read another book in my life because it was so God-awful for me to read. I couldn't remember what I read, right? And so um, I read, in the next four years, I read Jaws, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is a story about a woman that gets murdered, um, and Love Story, and, uh, I think that's it. three books. That's it. And I was started learning the principles and I started to see that my mind was going really fast and I needed to get some quiet time. And so I started reading Janet not Janet Ivanovich, um, Danielle Steele romance novels. Now at the time I'm hot to find a husband, right? So these are all like hopeful stories of women that you know, go through online and then they meet the man of their life and they, they're happily ever after. Well, I read them and I read Sidney Sheldon Mystery Stories and um, some other author. But I was cleaning out, I would read the book and then I'd put it in the closet upstairs. And I, two years later, I'm, I'm moving to Hawaii. So I had to go through my house and get rid of stuff. And I opened that and there were between 40 and 50 books in that closet. Wow. And I read that in a year and a half. And wow. it was like uh, so much for my uh, inability to read. But, <laughs> you know, like to this day, if I read something that's really technical, I get a thought about it. And that thought then creates my inability to really to, to read it. So what happens is, is like we we might have little twerks in our. I mean, the compute the brain's like a computer. You know, you can have stuff that's not quite developed right and things that aren't quite right about it. But the spirit in you can bypass that to a large degree. And you, then you learn how to deal with like I can't do left and right to this day yet. And I was at my dog training uh, class yesterday, and we were doing these. I do rally and the dog like goes in a circle one way and then you have to go, they go left and you have to go right. And I'm like, (gasps) you know, left and right. And so I told the instructor, sorry, I get these mixed up all the time. I'm dyslexic. And she goes, you're dyslexic. I said, Oh yeah. And, and she said, I would never have known that. And I just kind of chuckled and, you know, I thought, so, you know, it's like the possibilities are there and we're just learning about the, what this could bring to seeing how to get beyond our bodies. Yes. As and says,
1: have- there are no limits nor boundaries to the human mind. Yeah. Which means we can reach the spirit and then the mind is elevated. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. with that.
0: Yeah. And and you just have to know it's there to talk to it. Yeah. Right. If you know that's in the person, you'll talk to that. You'll draw it out of them. And if you can see that's in you, you can do anything you want. You'll figure out a way. So that's our best shot at it. Yeah.
1: So we'll see you next week. Take care.
0: We hope you heard something new and that you will continue to join us to challenge the prevailing thinking about the possibilities for health in everyone to subscribe to the podcast Visit our website at psychologyhasitbackwards.com.